So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the first chapter, just verses 49 and 50. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to truly bring it alive for us. Heavenly Father, as we look at these two short verses, we would see you. That's our goal, that's our purpose, is to see you as Mary sees you, as the Old Testament presents you, so that we will worship you by exalting you as you should be exalted. Lord, we are here for that purpose this morning, to worship you, and we pray that we will learn what is going to be revealed to us here on these pages and the rest of the scriptures we're going to look at, that you would reveal to us your power, your glory, your holiness, your love, your mercy, your intimacy, all the things that make you who you are. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, one thing that Scripture is not silent about at all is how we should worship. And I'm not just talking about the form of our worship, what we include in our worship. I'm talking about our hearts, the hearts of the worshipers, and how those should be prepared when worship is done. Now, I'm also not speaking of the multiple aberrations of that word that exist in our culture today. Virtually anything is called worship. No, I'm talking about biblical worship. Now, some of the ways that worship is revealed to us is just in glimpses. Uh, We don't get the whole story. Like, for instance, Abraham, as he makes his way up Mount Moriah with the fire and the wood and his son to obediently sacrifice that son to God, and then when God releases him and provides the ram, the exaltation of God at that moment. Moses, as he lies on his face the way I see it before the burning bush with his sandals off to the side because the ground upon which he now worshiped is holy ground children of Israel as they stand before the mountain of Sinai and God has come down upon that mountain in power and glory and they can't even touch the mountain so holy has it become as the first gathering of the kahal the assembly of God worships him at that mountain or the seraphim who in the, 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 the temple in Isaiah's beautiful vision as they cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory and they cover their eyes so as not to look upon the Shekinah and they worship God in that way. Or Jesus in his life as he worshiped in the desert of temptation or in his high priestly prayer or in the garden of Gethsemane or, or even on the cross as obediently he sacrificed himself. What Abraham didn't have to do, Jesus did. All of these are glimpses of worship. But there are a few places where we get a broader picture and, and I want to read you a passage out of the book of Revelation, Revelation 4. It's a kind of a lengthy passage. If you want to turn there, you can follow along. 
But we get a view, an image. And, and this is what apocalyptic literature is designed to do, is to create an image in your mind. So I want that image to be in your mind as we return to Mary's prayer of worship and we see what uh, we can learn from that. Reading from the fourth chapter now of the book of Revelation, second verse. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God, an apocalyptic view of the Holy Spirit. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will They existed and were created. What an image that is. And once again, that's what apocalyptic literature is designed to do, is to create an image in your your head of of what you're seeing. And what you're seeing is heavenly worship. And, And notice the reverence and the awe and the respect of God's power and His holiness as even the angels are reverent before God. And the, and the elders throw their crowns before him. Now I'm going to resist the urge to jump in and follow up that passage. It's such a beautiful one. But here's my point. I want that image in your mind. And I also want you to notice something about each glimpse that we have of Scripture and uh, in Scripture of worship. It's all about God. It's all about exalting God. It is all about worshiping God. There's no me in that. There's no felt needs. There's no emotionalism, no sentimentality, no creating an aura of worship. It is people standing or falling on their faces before God and worshiping Him as He should be worshiped. That, I think, is what we're going to pick up from Mary's worship, her song of worship, because I think that she had a profound sense of Old Testament view of God. And that augmented and helped her worship something that I'm afraid, brothers and sisters, that we have long since lost in the church today. 
Well, the way we're going to look at this, of course, you, you should know this. We're in the middle, oh, we're not in the middle, we're still sort of at the beginning of Mary's Magnificat. So let's kind of set the scene again so that we can sort of ease into these two verses. By this time, Mary has been confronted by the, by the angel Gabriel who has told her that she is going to have a, a, a child, a son, even though she's never known a man. He's going to be great. He's going to be the son of the Most High. And he is going to occupy the throne of David. As soon as she has overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, she quickly gathers her st- things together and gets on down to her relative, Elizabeth, who also is with child miraculously. And she's probably the only woman on earth who's going to understand what's going on with her. And so as soon as the two women meet, you remember there was an extraordinary reaction. We have every reason to believe that Mary was filled with the Holy Spirit, even though Luke doesn't tell us. But he does tell us that Elizabeth is filled with the Holy Spirit and the child in her womb, a six-month-old fetus, leaps for joy under the stimulus of the Holy Spirit, on the one hand to show the joy in heaven over the conception of the Christ child, but also to start the process that will identify and define John the Baptist to be the herald of the king who is to come, even though that king is a mere embryo in the womb of Mary. Well, very quickly, Elizabeth sings a song in which she blesses Mary. She blesses the child. She blesses all, as I said earlier, who believe in the fulfillment of God's promises. But then she talks about her own blessings. And that leads us directly into this song, the second of five songs in Luke's nativity narrative. This song about from Mary about the magnificence of God. That's why it's called the Magnificat, because of the first verse, my soul magnifies the Lord. Well, we only looked at the first three verses last week, and even though it's not a neatly divided song, one one part is about this, another part is about that, we, we focused on Mary last week, not because Mary was focused on herself. Mary is completely focused on God, as we are going to see this morning. But we learned some things about Mary just in the way she presented herself. For one, we learned that she had a powerful command of Scripture. Even though she was a teenage girl from Nazareth, there was one Scripture in all of the whole town. She never got to handle it. All she did was hear it, and she committed it to her heart. All that she had learned, she had just learned by hearing rather than actual study. We also notice, and we'll notice this uh, this morning, that she has a remarkable grasp of theology. Not only does she know the scriptures, she knows how to put them together. She has a very profound understanding of God in these verses we're going to see this morning. We also noticed her humility as, as she recognized who she was before this holy God. That also will become important this morning. But last week, more than anything else, we focused on the fact, and it was the first point of kind of four points that I have in this, in this song, and that was that true worship is not external. True worship comes from inside. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. It came from inside of her, and in fact, we realized even as the Heidelberg Confession just stated that words of praise on the lips of unbelievers and pagans is not considered to be worshipped by God. 
is when it comes from the redeemed heart of those who love him and those who know him and those who are known by him. Well, anyway, that leads us to the point where we are, which is the 49th and 50th verse. And we're going to switch our focus from Mary, or what the the song tells us about Mary, to what her focus is, her only focus, and that's the exaltation of God. Now, I just picked out two verses. It doesn't mean that these are the only two verses that talk about God, because the whole song is about God. But these two verses just tell us something about God in the way that I want to bring them out. So let me read them both to you. And I'll tell you that there are four attributes about God that she reveals in here. Two pairs, if you will, that are going to be our focus this morning. See if you can pick them out. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Did you, did you pick them out? First of all, God is mighty. Secondly, he's personal and intimate. He has done great things for me. Thirdly, he, he is holy. And fourthly, he is merciful. Four things that if we understand them, and especially in the two pairs that Mary has given us, God is powerful, God does good things for me, God is holy, God is merciful. As long as we understand the relationship between those, then we're going to understand what kind of heart is truly prepared for worship as Mary is doing that. So with that said, let's jump into um, the first one, and that is that God is mighty. Now, Actually, the the sentence is sort of backwards, the way that it's presented to us in English. In in the Greek, it's more like, he who does good things for me, and then just the word dunatos in the Greek, mighty, powerful one. Dunatos is the word we get our word dynamite from. It speaks of an explosive power, an uncontrollable power, and actually a dangerous power. And that's the way she describes the one who is mighty is the one who has done good things to me. So she speaks of the mightiness of God. And I think that the way that we should see this is as almighty. And, and, and bear with me because I actually don't think it should be that, you know, the word we stick together with a single L, almighty. I think we need to separate them and have the word all with two L's with a hyphen and say mighty because that's exactly what is meant here. God is omnipotent. It means he's almighty. He's all powerful. There is no God. He is El Elyon. He's the supreme being. There's no God with more power than he has or no being or nothing that can control God. God is all mighty. And she understands that kind of God. You see, Mary's God is not a small God, folks. He's not a watered-down God. He's not a diminished God. He's not an anemic God. Mary's God is the God of the Old Testament, a God of power and a God of might. He's the God who made the world Elohim with just his will, just a word. All that you see, all that is created, God in his power made all of that. He's also the God of Noah, who was able to destroy it as easily as he made it by bringing that flood and destroying the sinfulness in that way and then promising that he would never do it again. He's the God of Abraham, able to bring a child out of a withered, barren womb that is 90 years old. 
He's also the God of Moses who sent him to Egypt to lead his people out and parted the Red Sea and then came down in power and glory to reveal himself to the children of Israel. He's the God of those people who led them through the desert, sustaining them and providing them for them and then leading them into the promised land and taking out their enemies before them as he did in Jericho with the destruction of that wall. He's the God of David who built his kingdom and gave him a throne, the very throne that the child in Mary's womb now will occupy. He's the God of the prophets, the God that we read about, the God of awesome power who promises the Messiah. And now that Messiah is developing, although still an embryo in Mary's room. This this is the God that Mary worships, folks. He is an all-powerful God. And he is the God that the Old Testament tells us about. And forgive me, but I am not going to throw the Old Testament out. I am not going to deem it secondary because it is the inspired word of God. And it teaches us so much about who God is. In the words of Moses, O Lord God, you have only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? In the mouth of David, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. In the words of Jeremiah, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. In the words of Zephaniah the prophet, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. But probably the prophet I like best when it comes to describing God is Isaiah. Not only a great prophet, but just a great poet. And he has such a beautiful way of expression. In fact, I could just kind of get lost right now because we're going to read a little bit from the 40th chapter of Isaiah. And we could read every single word in that chapter, but I'm just going to pick out a few of the verses where he speaks of the power, the might, the almightiness of God. By the way, this is the same chapter where he identifies the baby who is in Elizabeth's womb when he says the voice cries in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make straight in the desert a highway for our God but just listen to how Isaiah exalts God in his words behold the Lord comes with might and his arm rules for him Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in. To whom will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. He's talking about the stars. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name. By the greatness of his might and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. And finally, have you not known? Have you not heard? 
The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. I know that's a lot of scripture. But that's the God that Mary now is worshiping, folks. He's, he's not this watered-down, anemic God that so often is the God that we hold up in our churches today. He's the all-powerful God of all time. I, I mean, and, 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 and totally and completely as he is. That's the reason we cannot throw out this Old Testament because it shows us who God is. So we learned something very important about worship here, I think, from Mary. There's two things that I think we can pick up from her. First of all, she has a knowledge of Scripture. So she knows what Scripture says about God. She has those facts. She knows what the Bible tells us, just like I just read you. That's God. That's the God we serve. That's the God we're here to worship. But just as importantly, as Elizabeth kind of pointed out in her song, not only does she know these facts, she believes them. She accepts them as truth. Brothers and sisters, Knowing what the Bible says doesn't do you any good unless you accept it as, as truth. And, and, and accept it as truth to the point that your life reflects it. That it begins to change your behavior and the way that you act and live in this world. Understanding the power of the God who made you. Let me give you a principle as we wrap up the power aspect of this. And, 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 and I want to put it this way. It is impossible. It is impossible to exalt God in the way that he should be exalted when the one who is doing the exalting does not understand how exalted God is. Did you get that? It is impossible to exalt God in the way that he should be exalted if the one who is doing the exalting does not understand the power of God and therefore worship him as the Almighty. In order to truly worship God, we need to worship him as he is, not as we manufacture him to be. And that is what Mary is doing when she says that he who is mighty. Well, she's going to go on, and it's actually before it, but she's going to go on and talk about God as an intimate and a personal God. And, and, and brothers and sisters, we are, again, these are paired. At least I'm pairing them. I think they're paired. I, I didn't read it anywhere, but they certainly seem to be. These are compliments that are of great importance because it shows that Mary understands something about God. That this God who is so great and so powerful, remember our discussion of transcendence, that God that is unknowable, that is incomprehensible, unapproachable, that God who is so powerful and great also knows Mary. And does great things for her. And, 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 and what she is doing is, we have already seen this about Mary. She understands her place. She understands who she is. She understands she is a drop in the ocean of humanity. That she's a grasshopper and God is the all-powerful God. She has that relationship firmly in her minds. And brothers and sisters, that is hugely important for us to understand and have the proper heart for worship. But what, what we're seeing is an awe because she understands that, because she understands who God is and she understands who, is she, who she is. She is in awe and wonder at the fact that God 
knows her, that God blesses her, that God loves her, that God is interested in what she does and what happens to her. And this is the heart of worship, folks, is to understand that we can never approach God, but he comes to us. He's that transcendent God who is also imminent. Once again, we read about this in the Old Testament. God put it this way, or Isaiah put it this way, God speaking. In a a verse that we read last week in the moment of the word, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. A couple of Chapters later, he puts it this way. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool, but this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my words. David, a man after God's own heart, the king of Israel, seldom forgot. He did on occasion. But he seldom forgot that he was a shepherd boy from Bethlehem. And trust me, whenever he forgot, God reminded him. But this is the way he puts it. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. In the 51st Psalm, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. The 138th Psalm, for though the Lord is high, he regards the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Do you see? Do you see the relationship that is, is in the understanding that Mary has as she brings these two seemingly disparate ideas together? The, magnet, the magnificence of God and her lowly estate and then the awe-inspired meditation on the fact that God loves her and knows her? This is something that Jesus is going to teach, brothers and sisters, and you know it. Uh, the, the opening um, part of the, of the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for they will inherit the earth. He understands and came to love and to take care of the poor. In fact, you remember in Nazareth, the very same synagogue where Mary would have learned what she learned about Scripture. In that same synagogue, her son now, a grown man in his ministry, is going to go on a Sabbath. And what they did on a Sabbath is, you have a visiting person, they would read the scroll. So he picked up the scroll and he turns to Isaiah and said this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he set down the scroll. You can only imagine the drama. And he looked around him and he says, Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. First, they took him to the edge of town, tried to throw him off a cliff, but they weren't successful. You see, this is something that permeates the teaching of Christ, as he tells us about God. Later on, he's going to tell his disciples, are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall into the ground apart from your father, but even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Now, this is the heart of this aspect of what Mary is understanding about God, the very heart of it. Because she has an understanding of who God is. She she knows that he's great and powerful and incomprehensible. At the same time, she doesn't elevate herself. 
You see, she knows that she's nothing. She knows that she's just a drop in the bucket. And yet, she understands that God loves her and has counted the very hairs on her head. Notice what she's done and how different it is from our mode of worship. She doesn't pull God down. She doesn't diminish him. She doesn't whittle him down, wash him down to try to make him more like her. And she doesn't elevate herself. She wants God to be where God is. And she wants herself to be where she is. And she exalts the God who loves her and knows her and cares for her. Who is intimate and and, and close and imminent as far as that God is concerned. Brothers and sisters, this is something that we have completely lost, almost lost, in our modern worship. It's all about me. It's all about my felt needs. It's all about what I'm going to get out of this service or the the feeling or the emotion or the sentimentality that I take with me after this service. That's not the way that true worship is. True worship leaves God where he is and leaves us where we are and marvels that he even cares enough to love us, to send his son to die for us. That's the heart of worship. Well, after expressing that, she goes on to the next one at the end of that verse when she says, and holy is his name. Okay, now we're going to go into a new area. I want to keep this in the context of worship. But what Mary is going to make clear to us by just these short statements is that if you're going to worship God, you've got to worship him as the holy. You have to understand who he is as the holy. Now, if you were here over the holidays, you know that that was our focus, that we had a little mini-series on the holiness of God. And you also know that this is far too big of a subject for us to adequately deal with here. But I I just want to bring some things out about her understanding of God in his holiness and worshiping him as such. That God, again, she understands the idea of transcendent God set apart from his, his creation. That's all that holiness means, that he is set apart. And those that he interfaces with, those of us who are fallen and therefore profane. And that which is profane cannot be in the presence of that which is holy. And that, of course, is our big problem. Now, I'm not going to tell you, I don't want you, uh, if you're a believer in Christ, I don't want you to believe that you're still under the condemnation and the wrath of God because you're not, because Jesus took that from you. And I don't want you to carry around any baggage with you, but I also am not talking about your salvation. I am talking about worship. And this is a hugely important part of worship, to realize the holiness of God and your lack of that holiness. That which is profane cannot stand in the presence of that which is holy. Remember what we learned about Moses. Once again, I said it earlier. When Moses went to see the burning bush, which was another example of the transcendent God, imminent in the bush. He was in the bush, but not of the bush. What did God say? Moses... Take the shoes off your feet, sandals off your feet, because the ground upon which you're standing is holy. Why is it holy? 
It's holy because God is there. That's why the only reason that ground is holy is because God is holy. Remember later on after Moses went to Egypt and worked all those mighty miracles and brought them through and parted the Red Sea. Of course, God does the parting and brings them to the mountain Sinai to worship and gather before him. This is what we read of that gathering. Now, Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke of it went up like a, the smoke of a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And as the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses spoke, and God answered in thunder. That reminds you of that scene John saw in Revelation. Do you remember what God had told Moses to the children of Israel? Don't let them touch the bottom of the mountain. Don't let the, even an animal touch it. Because I am coming down upon that mountain, and I am holy, and that means the whole mountain is holy, and if they even touch it, they will die. Because that which is profane cannot be in the presence of that which is holy. God is very interested, brothers and sisters, to know the state of your heart When you come before him in worship, God is very specific about what he wants out of worship, that he wants those who worship him to be holy, something that Nadab and Abihu found out too late, poor us of the same way. That God is very specific about what he says about how he will be worshipped, and he will not abide it if we worship him in a way that we should not. Once again, the Old Testament is extremely clear about the holiness of God. Moses, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? The psalmist put it this way, holy and awesome is his name. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. And of course, that beautiful image that we get out of Isaiah 6 of the seraphim as the Shekinah of God fills the temple and the, and, and the, the seraphim fly, calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole world is filled with his glory. And they cover their eyes, six wings they have. Two of them they use to cover their eyes so they will not gaze upon the holiness of God. Even the divine angels will not look upon The one who is holy. Mary, I think, understands something that we have lost in our modern worship. And that is that God wants those who worship him also to be holy. Even as he is, Leviticus 11. You shall therefore be holy for I am holy. And don't think that's an Old Testament uh, verse that doesn't matter in the New Testament. Because Peter repeats it, quotes it word for word in 1 Peter. God wants his worshipers as they approach him to be holy and to worship him in the splendor of his holiness. Our dear brothers and sisters, there is a correlation here. Now, we're going to talk about mercy in a moment, okay? Because mercy is the other, there's a compliment here. Let me just kind of focus on the holiness. Why do you think that we have stopped worshiping God as holy in our churches for the most part? Why do you think we've watered him down? Why do you think we have brought him, diminished him, his holiness? 
Well, I, I think one of the reasons is because there is a complement to God's holiness. And the complement to his holiness is his wrath. And we don't like to talk about the wrath of God. And so in order to dispel the wrath of God, we tend to bring down his holiness. The wrath of God and the holiness of God are two sides of the same coin. You've probably heard me many times talk about the zealousness of God and the jealousness of God. How the same Hebrew word is used to describe both of those because they are so intricately interwoven you cannot separate one from the other. God is zealous. He loves those he made in his image. And because he is zealous, he is jealous of their worship. He will not allow them to worship anyone else. You will have no other gods before me. You will not make to yourself a graven image. God will not allow in his jealousness for us to worship any other God because of his zealousness. In other words, the greater the zealousness, the greater the jealousness. And God is infinite in his zealousness for those he loves. And so therefore he is infinite in his jealousness. It's the same way with his holiness and his wrath. The complement to the holiness of God is the wrath of God. Because that which is profane cannot stand in the presence of that which is holy. And when that which is profane sins against that which is holy, the necessary complement to the holiness is wrath at that sinfulness. God could not be God unless he was wrathful at sin. And the same thing applies, brothers and sisters. The greater the holiness, the greater the wrath. God is infinite and perfect in his holiness. And so therefore he is infinite and perfect in his wrath. We don't like to talk about that, do we? We like God to be all mercy and all grace. So we have diminished the holiness of God so that we can diminish the wrath of God. But brothers and sisters, if we are going to worship God as he should be worshipped, we must worship him in his holiness. Now, again, we're, we're going to talk about mercy in a moment because Mary does. But I want you to recognize that when you come before God to worship, there are some things you need to remember about him. You need to remember that he is unapproachable. He lives an unapproachable light. You need to remember that he is incomprehensible. I'll explain in the after church how that differs from knowledge of God. You need to remember that he is perfect in his holiness and therefore perfect in his wrath. And you are not. You are profaned. Therefore, and again, we're going to talk about mercy later. But therefore, because of the holiness of God and his wrath at your sin, you are damned. You're damned. You have no hope. You're headed for hell. And there's no other place that you can possibly go than out of the presence of a holy God. Unless that God extends mercy to you. And as I said, we're going to get there in a moment. But do you understand that? Do you realize that you can never, ever stand in his presence on your own? Do you realize that because of your sinfulness, you're separated from God and he cannot look upon you because he cannot look upon iniquity? Do you realize that hell is a real place, folks? 
We didn't make it up. Now, we may argue about what hell is like, but you can't argue about the fact that Jesus talked more about hell than anyone else, and he told us, you don't want to go there. Whatever it's like, that's the last place you ever want to go. So repent and believe in the gospel. That's the message of the gospels. Believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and you will be saved. So why don't we talk about that aspect of it? Let's talk about mercy. Because we love to do that, don't we? We love to talk about mercy. It's no problems there. But the holiness of God is one of the most un- underrated and therefore underworshipped of all the attributes of God. But it is complemented by his mercy. Mary puts it this way in the 50th verse. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Mercy is undeserved merit. Mercy is undeserved favor. Mercy is a gift. Mercy does not come from you. It is not something that you generate. It is not something that you can earn or deserve. And if you do, it's no longer mercy. It's no longer grace. Grace has got to be a gift, folks. And it is the gift of God. And he, in his compassion, even in an Old Testament context, extends mercy to those who fear him. Now, we should probably talk about that phrase, what it means. And I told you, actually, when we were looking at the Heidelberg Catechism earlier, that you, you might need to kind of understand that, that what, what he means by the fear of the Lord. When we talk about the fear of the Lord, and most of you know this, we're not talking about terror or horror or to be petrified of him. I know what God wants out of us. It's not like that South Sea Island, you know, where there's this little community at the base of an active volcano that continually erupts, and they live in absolute mortal fear of the volcano god, and that's the reason they sacrifice their maidens to the volcano. That's not what we mean by fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is healthy. Fear of the Lord is good. Fear of the Lord is something that scripture teaches us, Psalm 111. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. His praise endures forever. It is something that God appreciates, Psalm 147. But the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him and those who hope in his steadfast love. The fear of the Lord, and I know I've used this example many times, but it's just to me it's a good example being an old sailor. And, and that it's like someone who really knows the sea. Now, I've been out with novices, and they're reckless, <laughs> cavalier. You know, who cares? You know, let's go out and get it. Well, n- not seasoned sailors. Seasoned sailors who've been across the Atlantic, who've been in around-the-world races, they have a fear of the sea. They know, and they've seen it. They know the sea can pick up their little boat and crush it like a bear can and throw it away. And so, therefore, they take precautions because they have an abiding fear of the sea. It doesn't mean they're, they're not going to spend their life on the sea. That's where they choose to live and choose to work. But they have a healthy fear. Let the novices be cavalier, not those who really know what they're doing. Same thing with God. There's a respect. There's a reverence. There's a love. There's a recognition of who God is. And to realize who he is, and he's the one who can send souls to hell. He's the one that can destroy the world like he did under Noah. He's the one who can end all things. And so, therefore, there's a healthy fear, a healthy respect, a healthy reverence of God that should permeate 
our worship. He is merciful for those who fear him from generation to generation. That's a Hebrewism, and it can be seen in two different ways. On the one hand, it sort of speaks of space and time. And, and that's one of the ways that it is used. Uh, from generation to generation is another way of saying forever. Okay, Like, for instance, in Psalm 79, but we, your people, the sheep of your pastor, will give thanks to you forever. From generation to generation, we will recount your praise. But it doesn't just mean, and especially in this context, it doesn't just mean time. It also means space. It also means a boundlessness to what we're talking about. And, of course, there is a boundlessness to the grace of God, even as Psalm 103 stated, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to his children's children. And so, in other words, there there is a boundlessness to the mercy that Mary is talking about. But realize that when she exalts God for his mercy, she's not just saying, I exalt you because you look after me and you do good things for me, because you're kind and because you're nice. She is exalting him for boundless, boundless mercy, a mercy that there is no end to, no depth, no shores to that ocean, as we sang earlier. There is a mercy that cannot be contained, and it lasts forever. This is the mercy of God. But notice what she says. Even though she says it's boundless, it knows no end, it knows no, no bounds on the, uh, and the, on the expanse of it, it, it doesn't mean it's all-inclusive. It, it is an exclusive mercy. She says it without question that it is extended to those who fear him. And that 103rd Psalm that we just read, very next verse says, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. And so therefore, there's an exclusiveness that she is building into this in the way that she says from generation to generation. Now, once again, I want you to see the theological, actual, the remarkable theological grasp of this teenage girl. We've already seen that she understands that there's a tension between the transcendent God and the imminent God, and she's in the middle of it. And she stands in awe at the fact that God loves her and knows her. Now she says there's the same kind of tension between his holiness and his wrath at my sinfulness and his mercy, which is going to take away those sins. Now, brothers and sisters, again, I want you to keep this in the context of worship. I don't necessarily want you to walk around with the baggage that you have been released from. Because you are not under the condemnation of God because you believe in Jesus Christ. And through his cross work, through what he did, you have been relieved of your burden. Even like Christian in Pilgrim's Progress, his burden came off of his shoulders when he saw the cross and rolled down the hill and into the empty tomb. You have been relieved by that, from that burden, of that burden of sin that weighs you down. By believing in Jesus Christ, you are privileged to the mercy of God, the grace of God. You no longer have to carry that sin around and pay for it. So in a justification, 
in a salvation and a redemption sense. I don't want you walking around with your guilt. But when you come to worship God, remember. Remember His holiness and your profanity. And the fact that there's one destination for you and that is hell. One for the mercy of God who pulled you out of the gutter. Pulled you out of the sewer. Washed you off. Gave you clothes of righteousness. Forgave you and put a place at His Son's table for an eternity. And you didn't do anything to deserve that. You you had no merit of your own. He did it because he loves you and because of his overwhelming, boundless mercy. And that's the mercy that Mary is saying. Do you see the heart of worship? Because brothers and sisters, when you come before God with that heart, when you understand that he is great and you are not And you don't try to bring him down. You don't try to lift him up. But you extol him and exalt him because that great God loves you and has counted the heads, hairs on your head. Your heart is prepared for worship. When you recognize that he is all holy and that his wrath at your sinfulness, just the sins that you have committed since you woke up this morning, would condemn you and damn you for an eternity. Except because he loves you so much, he sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die on a cross. And now that, that, that wrath didn't evaporate. That wrath was directed on Christ. When your sins and my sins were placed upon him, that wrath was put on him. And he suffered that wrath so that you would not want to, you, you would not need to. Now, when you come to him in worship, that should be your heart. My goodness, why am I here? I am here because you loved me. And I'm here because you forgave me. I am here because of your mercy and your atonement and your grace and the cross work of your son, Jesus Christ. That, brothers and sisters, is the heart of worship. I can guarantee you, you come with that heart, you're going to be worshiping God as he should be worshiped. Not, unfortunately, as... He is so often worshipped in the world today. I, I hate to even muddle the, that beautiful image of worship that Mary gives us with the way it's been corrupted in the world that is around us. But in, in the worship that we see so often in churches, it, it's not about God. It's not about exalting Him. It's about me. It's about my own felt needs. I need something from this church and either I'm going to get it or I'm going to go someplace else because I have some need that needs to be fulfilled and I haven't come to exalt God as my Savior and my Lord as the all-powerful and at the same time the intimate God as the, as the perfect in His holiness and merciful God. I have come because I need something. So brothers and sisters, I just want to leave you with this. Indulge me for a moment. I want to underscore this point. How is it possible for someone who has been redeemed in the way that you have been redeemed to worship flippantly? To worship casually? To worship nominally? How is that possible? And how is it possible to say, I'm going to throw out the Old Testament, I'm going to throw out the power of God. I'm going to throw out the wrath of God and say that you're worshiping. How, How can you truly appreciate the mercy that you have been extended if you do not understand and accept the wrath of God? How how can you truly appreciate heaven if you 
deny the existence of hell? How can you truly appreciate your salvation if you're not aware of your condemnation? And so therefore, both are necessary in worship, not in your justification or your sanctification, not to carry around, but when you worship, you need to be aware of the the depths from which God has saved you. And I believe Mary has that. There's not a lot of me in Mary's Magnificat. She says, my soul magnifies who? The Lord. My spirit rejoices in who? God, my Savior. Let me run through this real quickly. It'll take me 30 seconds. Count the number of third-person pronouns. He has looked at the humble estate of his servant. He is mighty. He has done great things for me. His name is holy. His mercy is for those who fear him. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones. He has exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel. He has remembered his people in his mercy. He has remembered his covenant with Abraham. He, he, he. No me. No me in that, folks. No, look at me. No, my emotion, my needs. It's all about God. It's all about He. So I want to leave you with a question. I did this last week. Christianity is an introspective religion. And I want you to consider and ask yourself, why are you here? I don't mean that rhetorically. I mean, really, why are you here? You got up this morning, got out of bed, you got dressed, got in your car, you came here to sit in this sanctuary for a couple of hours. Why are you here? What was your purpose for doing that? Is it because you've always done that? This is your tradition? Your parents did this before you and their parents before them, and we've always gone to church. That's what we do on Sunday morning. That's what we're supposed to do. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing. That's a good tradition. But if that's the only reason that you're here, that's the wrong reason. Are you here because you have a felt need? Because you're, you're running low on spir- spiritual energy and you need a B12 shot. You need, you need a shot of spirituality. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but if that's the reason you're here, you're here for the wrong reasons. Are you here because there's a hole in you, someplace that you need to fill? Are you here because you're looking for a spiritual high? Are you here because you like the music? Are you here for a multitude of other reasons? Are you here because you're afraid that if you're not here, God is going to do something bad to you? Are you afraid of the negative consequences of not coming to church? What are you here for? Why did you come to church this morning? Seriously, I mean, ask yourself, why are you here? Mary tells us why you should be here. One reason and one reason only. The Old Testament tells us that there's one reason And one reason only that you are here. It is to exalt the Lord your God. To adore him. To praise him for his might. 
because he is the almighty God. To adore him and praise him because of his intimacy. He is the imminent God who loves you and wants to be with you. To adore and praise him because he is the perfect, holy God. He cannot look upon iniquity, but to praise him because in his infinite mercy, he saw you, he loved you, he sent his son to die for you and to take his wrath that you deserved. Brothers and sisters, that's why you're here, to worship that God in that way, with that heart. You think about that. Let's pray. Lord, I know that so often we come to worship you for a variety of reasons, and please don't let them get me wrong. I'm not saying that any of those reasons are bad reasons. It's good to want to praise you. It's good to want to sing the songs. It's good to want to, to be in church every Sunday morning. It's good to want the fellowship. It's not so good to do it because they're in fear. But it's good. All those things are. But that's not the reason we're here. Help us to remember that we're here to worship. That's the only reason we're here is to worship. And that this worship service should exalt and glorify you. I mean, all the other things that we do, if, if, if they're anything, they're secondary. Even evangelism. Evangelism is such a wonderful thing. But that's not what we're here to evangelize the lost. We're here to praise the God who saved us. Lord, help us understand that. Help us to know that in the very essence of who we are. We will give you the glory in Christ's name. Amen.